Past a Purpose. Thanks for joining us again this week. Today, we are really excited. Our audio engineer, Jack, is co-hosting with me today. Alan was unable to record with us due to trying to coordinate four different time zones today. So Jack and I are hosting this episode. So Jack, welcome to your voice to Past a Purpose. You've been editing our episodes for a while now, but welcome. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Hey guys, I'm Jack. Nice to meet you all on the air. I am mostly involved in music and audio behind the scenes. That's kind of where my thing is. And a few years ago, I went to college in New Zealand at Victoria University of Wellington to study music. It was an incredible experience. I was there for about three years and uh, met some amazing people. And one of those people is on the episode today. That's a great segue. So can you tell us more about John Sathis, who is going to be joining us here in a few minutes, and how you met John and why you wanted to have him on? Yeah, John was there. He was able to mentor me along with some of my other colleagues and was kind of a favorite on campus. I don't know how else to really say it, other than he paid attention to the students and kind of knew what they needed. He would organize a lot of events there for people to connect and whatnot, because composing and music It can be pretty isolating, whether you're in a practice room or you're writing. So he was also always there to kind of lean on if you had questions or needed support regarding assignments or personal stuff. So I'm really excited to have him on. He's he's a favorite. Well, he's also very accomplished. And just to give a brief background to John... He, again, as Jack said, is New Zealand-based, and he shot to worldwide attention when his music was heard by an audience of more than a billion people during the opening ceremony of the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens. And during the intervening years, his music has been continually commissioned and performed by top musicians around the globe. His music has moved concert audiences in more than 50 countries on all seven continents, even Antarctica, which is on my bucket list. He is now also considered one of the three most important living composers of the Greek diaspora. He has collaborated with many diverse talents and in different genres, from a Billboard classical chart-topping album to projects with jazz musicians and composers to orchestral works, film scores, and numerous commissions, many of which are for the world's top percussion performers. Sathis was also a sought-after faculty member at the New Zealand School of Music, Victoria University Wellington, for 25 years before closing the door on that chapter in 2019 to devote all of his time to composing and embarking on a return to performing on stage. The emergence of COVID-19 also served to further broaden the scope of Sathis's work. With the 2020 release of long-distance collaborative albums, It's Already Tomorrow and Last Days of March. He has continued to mentor a wide range of composers and performers, as well as hosting composer retreats, and was recently named one of the 12 recipients of the 2021 Absolutely Positively Wellingtonian Awards. So, without further ado, let's get into our interview with John. John, welcome to Paths to Purpose, and thank you so much for joining us this week. We would love to start our conversation with you today, specifically talking about your background before you became this very successful composer, Could you just tell us more about when did you start playing music? When did you feel a connection to music? And how did you first come to understand that you wanted to make composing your career? Yeah, firstly, thanks for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to be a part of this. To answer your question, a very brief potted history of my um, early life is that my parents were immigrants to New Zealand from Greece. And so I grew up as the child of foreigners in 1960s New Zealand which was uh, xenophobic to say the least. 
And so we kind of experienced, I certainly experienced early life as a real outsider, like very much outside mainstream culture, and essentially as a foreigner, even though I was born here. And so by the time I got to be around 10 or 11, we had moved to a slightly larger town in New Zealand. And I was at what we call intermediate, which is just before high school. And my parents, uh, being Greek immigrants, because there are these kind of stereotypical immigrant professions, they were in New Zealand, most Greeks were fish and chip shop owners. And so I grew up in fish and chip shops, uh, and I ended up, like my sister, working very hard in these shops. It was part of the immigrant experience. And my parents happened to have a shop that it opened late. And so on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we would be working till two in the morning. This is at the age of 10, my sister even younger. Then we would go to school the next day. We'd be left to our own resources to drag ourselves out of bed and get to school on time and do well. We had no excuses. We were given no excuses. And my sister and I were both top students as well, you know. So we kind of experienced a very full and intense life at a young age. But what happened was um, when you were 10 and you work in a place till 2 in the morning, you see all kinds of nightlife. Right, You see all kinds of things that you really shouldn't when you're that age. And what would happen is I would end those nights very wound up, very kind of full of things in my head. And I would go home and I wouldn't be able to sleep. So what I started to do was we had a stereo I would put on the headphones and just lie in the dark and listen to music. And at that age, I was completely undiscerning. I had no idea of what music was what. So I just put every LP we had on through the stereo. What emerged from that, I would say I was about 10 or 11 was I started to have absolutely massive experiences with the music, like in the dark as a young person. Certain things would leap out from the whole collection. So there was a, like a Beethoven piano sonata, but there was also an album by Alan Parsons. There was something by Keith Jarrett, this piano improviser. There were just things where, where I started having really kind of transcendental experiences. And I became very quickly addicted to this. I'm just thinking now as I say it that nowadays you would have your cell phone and you would get your dopamine hits from your cell phone. Um, <laughs> I just totally became addicted to music. And I asked my parents to get a piano. My sister learned the piano, but I asked if we could get a better one. And uh, I started playing and improvising on the piano as a very young person, just completely. It would have been awful. Whatever I was playing, it would have been terrible because I had no idea what I was doing. But um, it meant a lot to me. And so I then wanted to learn the mechanics of music. So I asked if I could have theory lessons. And what happened was in a very short space of time, like from 12 to 16, I went from not knowing anything to auditioning for university. I think retrospectively, I must have been good at it in some way to have developed that fast and to have gotten that far. But it was a no-brainer for me that I was going to do music because what I arrived at was that making music so that other people could have the experience that I was having as a listener had to be the best thing a human being could ever do. This is what I thought when I was 12. I believed that. And actually, a part of me still believes that the kind of experiences you can have from music when you have your really intense experience on your own in particular, there's nothing that equals that. It's a very unique thing that music offers because of its, I think it's abstract nature. If it doesn't have words, if it's just like instrumental music or electronic music, it's like silent reading. There's something that happens in your brain that is extremely unique for the human experience. So there you go. That's quite a deep realization to have at such a young age. I think that's fascinating. And I also, as I'm listening to you tell your story, I'm curious to hear if you had 
familial support on pursuing music as your profession and applying to college and doing music specifically because you came from an immigrant family and because it sounds like you had a lot of pressure to succeed and do well academically. So is that the case or how did you deal with that if so? Well, you know, it's a very interesting, probably very relevant to this podcast, which is that my parents were very much in that immigrant mold of it's not so much that we want our children to succeed, we want them to be able to look after themselves in what essentially felt like a semi-hostile environment, you know? And so that kind of meant, first and foremost, material security. So, you know, being financially safe and solid. But they could be transitioned, which happens a lot with musician parents, from, oh boy, our son's really into music, isn't that great, to, oh no, he's like really into music. And he's taking this way too seriously. And so um, when I said I wanted to audition for university and do a piano performance degree, it's interesting how your life is decided behind the scenes sometimes. You know, my father went to see my music teaching. I'm lucky that my parents were people with real imagination and vision and an openness. My father went to see my music teacher and they had a conversation that I found out about years later. And my father said, look, my son's so serious about this music thing. He wants to go to university, but I have no way of understanding if he has any talent because music isn't my thing. So what do I do? And uh, it was just that moment. My music teacher said, well, there's only one way to find out. You should let him go and see. And that's what happened. And it's so interesting that if my music teacher had said, oh, I don't think he's really going to get anywhere in that music thing, I would have been an accountant now or a lawyer or a doctor or something different. It's so fascinating, that side of life. And these things happen to people behind the scenes where your fate is being determined by others. John, thank you so much for being here and doing this. And I'm curious a little bit because I know where you ended up because I've seen you teach and I know about your career. Afterwards, I am curious about how you navigated the unpredictable parts of your career, possibly earlier on. I think everybody can have different points in their life where that happens. So can you talk a little bit about how you navigated unpredictability in music? It's especially when you're trying to make a living in it. I think there's added pressure. And I was curious to know if you could speak to that and your experience with that. Sure. I think the first part of that is to separate the material and public version of succeeding or aspect of succeeding from the creative aspect, which is a very personal one. And the way of assessing those two things is very different as well. But I would say the kind of baseline answer to your question is that at a very young stage in my journey, I instinctively stopped needing to know things for sure. It's a really big thing, right? So I didn't need to be certain about things or outcomes in order to try doing them. So that, that is quite a big personality trait. Did you acquire that from somebody? Was there somebody who, how did you learn that? It's not so much that I acquired it. It's just that, like, for instance, I was a big reader, okay, at a young age. And so I, like, I never have and will never be invited to parties because I'm so heavy going when you get me in a conversation, right? You know, like when I was 19, I was reading Dostoevsky and all that stuff. You know, I was going hardcore into the, into the literature and, and learning. I mean, if you really want to learn about life, literature is the place. Unless you have budget for permanent travel to go everywhere in the world books of the place. And so what I realized through the reading that I was doing was that there are so many ways of understanding things that to take a position and claim this is absolutely the truth about this thing 
is really a massive limitation more than anything else because it stops you from learning. And I've been told that I'm a really good listener, which I've never thought of myself as a really good listener, but I've been told that I am. And the reason is that I'm just super curious about everybody's point of view about everything. Far more curious to learn than to assert my point of view, you know? And because of that, I mean, I remember thinking this through my late 20s, 30s, and most of my 40s. I remember thinking, I mean, I don't, I don't really believe in anything. Like, there's nothing that I would say it's definitely this way. Because I was far too busy learning. And it's always been about the learning. And so every project that I take on, almost and almost completely the whole list of things I've done have been projects in which I don't know how I'm going to do it. You know, I, I enter into an arena where I go, well, hell, I hope, I hope I know how to figure this out. Because by the time I get to the end of it, I've learned so much. And if you approach it that way, which is it's all about learning and it's about a kind of an outward opening spiral rather than the inward going spiral, then navigating the journey is actually pretty easy because one of the things that you build into that way of being is an absolute understanding of the inevitability of failure. That is going to happen. It's just going to happen. And so you get out of the way having a negative feeling about that. And I'm not saying you rose-tinted and say, well, you know, failure is great and we really need it. And it's, I mean, it's awful. Failure is awful. But it's part of the journey. I have to tell you, I had a T-shirt. I commissioned a T-shirt because I often feel like a failure, right? And so I had a T-shirt that goes, the path to failure contains many successes. And it's about the bleakest thing you could ever think, right? But that's, that's often how it feels. People say, oh, you're so successful, you're so successful. You go, well, actually, you know, I've failed more than most people I know. That's the truth of it. But it doesn't bother me. So that's really the, the best answer I can give to that question. I think I'm the opposite currently. As I said, at age 27 in law school, and I have always been a person that tries to contingency plan everything and try to say, okay, what are the possible outcomes? What am I going to do? And so that's so refreshing to hear this perspective that you have, which is you can't plan for those things. And also you should know that like there will be parts that you will fall and that's part of it. And I'm wondering if when after you decided to go to college and all of those things, did you ever have those moments of fear and just that weight of what am I going to do and how do you work through it so that you get to your point, which is that you just do it anyway? It's a great question. It's funny because I really want to say, yes, I have had those moments of fear, but I haven't, you know? And the thing is that... um, That's phenomenal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But the thing is that I, you know, like I'm a super organized person. And when I started my studies, I had already done so much prior learning. By the time I got to university, I was a music theory junkie. I was begging my parents to give me after school lessons at the Polytech while I was at high school because I couldn't get enough. So the thing is, I had a good technical grounding. That actually matters a lot. Having some kind of solid knowledge base so you're not struggling with, you're not down in the weeds all the time but you're actually, you're a bit higher in terms of your perspective and your view. So that grounding is super important in all of this. But the thing is, I think ultimately it's that I just see it all as an experience of finding out. It's not an experience of achieving. I mean, milestones, yes, I have deadlines and I have to finish projects and deliver things, but 
It's more about the next project is an opportunity to learn these other things and won't that be great? And it's almost like the outcome is superseded by the experience of the doing. I do believe very much that we learn by doing. And I I have to just add to that, that when I went through university, I was by no means the most talented person in my class, by no means. And I'm not being falsely humble or anything. It's just that two things about that. One is that I am the most persistent person from my class. I'm the one that never gave up. And the other thing is that I've grown up with two friends in particular who I think are enormously talented, way more talented than me as creators and composers. But when you talk to them about things, I say, oh, you should do this, you should apply for this commission, you should do this project. I just witness over and over again them talking themselves out of it. Because they think about it so much, they can come up with all of these reasons why you probably shouldn't do it. You may have heard this, but that's the difference between failure and defeat. I don't know if you've heard this, but failure is when you try something and it doesn't turn out how you want. Defeat is where you're so sure of a negative outcome that you don't bother starting. So that's where you're defeated by the idea of trying. And so I've never had that. I think that's what I've, the fear that I've never had. And that's because I've experienced the worst train wrecks in live performance of my work than anybody else I know. I've been through the worst of it. And I know that you can pick yourself up and keep going. I wanted to ask about the people. And that's something that we talk about very frequently on this podcast is kind of your trust networks and who you surround yourself with and who you actually are vulnerable with, particularly as it applies to not just like your personal life, but your career and kind of who you listen to when you are going through difficult choices or failures or whatever it may be. And my question for you is, how do you choose those people that are in your trust network and how have they kind of impacted your career up to this point and beyond? First and foremost, I I really believe that you have to, you have to have complete trust in yourself. I mean, in your own approach to your well-being, you have to trust that the person that you are is on your team. And that's not as straightforward as it sounds. Because we have self-destructive tendencies, a lot of people have them, and even something like uh, laziness or procrastination, you know, things like that, that's the mild form of things, and then there are more extreme forms. So I think that's probably the fundamental relationship is to know that you are backing yourself and that you are on your own side and you're not self-sabotaging. That's the beginning of it. But then outside of that, the kind of circle of trust for me has been pretty much limited to my family. My parents were extraordinary people. My, my father's still alive. And he was really a, a rock of wisdom, you know, like a sage guru type figure, but very stern and, and very controlling, you know, just immigrant sort of father trying to make good for his kids, but very strong in his influence. But he was the person that everybody would go to if they had problems, including neighbors, friends, extended family, workmates. Everybody would come to dad because he was the guy. I learned a lot from his behavior, but I also gained a lot from being able to trust him completely. And he had this thing, which is in some ways the answer to your question, which is every now and then you talk to somebody and you say, I have a problem, I talk to you about it. And you can see in their kind of gaze or their stance, this shift, which is they push everything that's about them to the side and they are totally there for you. 
And then whatever you say, their response is entirely about your well-being. And they've removed themselves from that. And that's incredibly hard to find. Very hard to find it. And so if you ever find it, you super glue yourself to that person so that they remain in your life because it's very hard to find. And also you endeavor to be that person so that you can have those relationships. And so my parents, my sister, my wife, my kids, that's kind of it. And then I have, yeah, I have definitely one friend that I would go to, like I would trust my kids with. And then, then an outer circle. But when it comes to music, because that's another thing. I've really been talking about life in general, right? When it comes to music, there's no one. Right? There's no one I go to. And the reason for that is I don't want input into the music that I'm writing. It's a very self-contained universe. I mean, this might be something you want to ask me about separately, but I'll just jump into it, which is this idea of self-esteem and where it comes from. If you're creative and you create work, whether it's paintings or musical poetry or books, At my age, what I believe at this point is that almost your entire self-esteem comes from one place, which is your relationship to your pre-existing work. So how you feel about what it is that you've made, that's where most self-esteem comes from. And because of that, you have to ensure, you have to organize your entire life so that you are in a position to create the best work you are capable of making. So that five years from now, when you're looking back at the last three or four, five, ten projects that you've done, you go, actually, that's pretty good. I feel really good about that. That's when you feel good. That's when you have good self-esteem. If you've dropped the ball on it and you go, well, all of that could have been better. If I just had more time or if I wasn't so distracted or et cetera, et cetera, um, then your self-esteem drops. And I've seen that amongst my peers, my students, you know, and older composers as well. It's all about how you feel about your work and what you've done. Long answers. I love it, though. You know, we want the the meat and potatoes, and we're getting it. That's the good stuff. So let's say you get past the fear of starting, and you're in it, and you're doing it, and burnout comes, right? And I actually had a conversation with a student who went to Victoria, who knows you, and I guess he ran into you probably in Wellington. Wellington's small, guys. Okay. And... He was saying that he hadn't written in a while or that he was kind of struggling with his relationship to music and that you said it's not uncommon to not write music for like two years after you finish your degree. That there, there's just a sometimes a tumultuous relationship with music. And can you speak to that, how we can navigate the, the need to be creative, the pulling from yourself kind of constantly, but burnout and how that affects, affects you and how to navigate that? So I, um, I'm sort of extremely productive and can work like nonstop forever. So I don't, burnout's not a thing for me, which means I can't really answer to burnout. But what I can talk about is the university and the post-university experience. And then in terms of getting started on projects, it's very important to understand that university is a unique moment in one's creative journey. Because at university, essentially, you're still at school and somebody's telling you what to do. Okay, which is really a, a source of great tension when you're talking about creative work. And somebody says, write this, you're like, I don't want it. I want to write that. That's what I feel like doing. And it's like too bad. That, once you leave university, should never happen again to you because you're out of that system. 
It's different, like, I know, Jack, that you're super into film scoring. So that's like a different world. So I'm not really talking about that because that's part of a collective creation of a storytelling. That's something else. But in terms of just writing music for the stage or recordings or whatever, for me, it, it seems so simple. It's that, okay, so I don't have to do what other people tell me anymore. I'm not a student. There's no one in control of my creative journey anymore. What do I really want to do? Like, what's going to get me out of bed? and rush to my desk or my piano or my instrument or my manuscript, whatever it is, what's going to get me out of bed and make me not want to stop working on this thing? I think that something happens at university where you're almost, almost conditioned not to think that way. Like it's almost a guilty thing. Oh, I shouldn't be enjoying this quite. But in fact, it should be the coolest thing you do in your day is write music, if you write music. I just think there needs to be this kind of counterbalance where you leave your studies and you go, I'm free. I'm free to write whatever I want to write, which is actually a terrifying position to be in, of course, because you go, well, what do I want to do? You know, it's not obvious usually. And then the rest of it is all logistical problem solving, which is, okay, well, how do I materially survive while I do this thing that I really want to do? How do I manage relationships so that I don't find myself like a hermit just doing music? All of that other stuff, is that's all eminently solvable, that side of things. But the crucial thing is, am I doing what I really want to do with this thing, with music? And for me, it's always been, I'm just super, super, super excited to be working on the next thing and the thing that I'm working on. So it's really that. It's setting up that kind of domain for yourself where it's literally playtime for kids at school. You know how they rush out of the classroom and they can't wait to play? It's got to be that kind of zone. There has to be real joy in it because then everything else disappears. Motivation is there and procrastination disappears. All of that stuff is gone and you're just in this thing where just leave me alone. I want to work. I love this. I think that's so applicable to any student too, like that idea. And you're our first creative that we've ever had on the podcast. We've been very focused just because of Alan and my background in business and all these things. But I think that that is some universal advice that you just gave, which is whatever it is that you want to do, it should be something that you want to run to. And it it might feel scary for those of us that still have fear, (laughs) but it definitely is something that you're drawn to. And I think that that's the difficult part for a lot of people, I think, is feeling like the the logistical side of things and like, how am I going to eat? How, how am I going to make a living if I'm trying to launch a business, become a composer, whatever it is? How do you logistically manage that in addition to pursuing your career? If it's more, I don't know if it's risky or just more unstable at the beginning. And I'm wondering if you have any experience with that side of things, whether it's with you or with your students of kind of how to, how to continue and persist maybe when, when that's really difficult and how to still find that love and that joy in your purpose. Yes, absolutely. I think it's about which side of the coin you have up and which side down. And I think that for me, the way that it's worked out, I'm very, very wary of saying this is a piece of advice, but all I can say is this is what I've done which is that I have made the kind of fundament, the main driver has been the composing and being super excited about that side of things because that motivates me to work everything else out. But it also keeps me really positive. It's kept me in a space where I can produce good work 
And I have really great relationships with people within the industry of the work that I do. And I've chosen to make myself creatively, positively charged constantly and then to figure out the rest of it rather than the other way around. And I've seen this. I've seen people try and do it the other way around. Well, I have to sort out the material side of life. Like I have to get a deposit for a house and then I have to set myself up with the mortgage. And then when I've done that and I've had my two children, then I'll start thinking about writing the music I really want to write. And you go, well, now you're 45. What happened to all of those years? Because you don't get them back. You know, that's another part of it. And the other thing is, it seems to me, maybe it's always been this way, but it feels to me like, however you put it, the universe, the world, whatever it is, seems designed to take away all of the time that you might put into this thing, right? And it's like, okay, well, if I'm going to make a list of priorities, there are all these things I supposedly have to do, and then there's me time. Then there's the thing that I really want to do. And if you allow that, then I think the odds are super high you'll never do the thing that you really want to do. And so it's for me, I'm talking about flipping it over, where you say from the beginning, look, this is fundamental to me. And I've had this conversation with my wife a number of times when we were younger. I've been super lucky and blessed that she has supported me in this, which is I've said, if you want to be married to a happy guy, if you want to have someone that's okay to live with, then you've got to make sure that I can do this thing that I really want to do, because otherwise we won't last. You could say it's a condition of marriage, but it's a fundamental necessity. And if you don't mark that out for yourself, no one else does it for you. There is no group or person waiting to map out that territory for you. It's something you have to do for yourself. And then if you really want to have a family and a good family, you have to figure out how to do that and have a really good family at the same time. Because the thing I never wanted to do was be alone. I know a lot of artists that have done well, but they've lived incredibly solitary, lonely lives. And I've always thought it must be possible to do both. Talking more about the creative process, I was curious to know, what are some of the characteristics of your best collaborations or projects? Yeah, great. So, I mean, the most important thing for me are the people, the people that I collaborate with. It's interesting, for the first 15 years or so, I was too scared to collaborate. I just wrote pieces alone, did my thing, like, you know, concertos and string quartets and things like that. And then I eventually took the step. It was quite a big step for me and started working with people on projects. And that very quickly turned into the thing I wanted to do the most because what I realized, I mean, it's also the level that I work at. You know, I'm lucky to be at a certain level. I've just met and worked with the most incredible human beings. I would say musicians, but they're all great musicians. But a lot of them are really incredible human beings. And I've made my best friends through this journey We've made children together. We've created these projects and given, given birth to some new work together as a collaboration. That has been very, very special. And the other thing is it's opened up the world to me, these relationships. So I've had incredible collaborations with national icon musicians in Turkey, you know, in Istanbul. I've worked closely, and he's a good friend with Serge Tankian from System of a Down, the singer. You know, I've worked with musicians, amazing musicians from India, from Morocco, from Iran, from France, of course, America and Canada and the UK. But it's just the whole world has opened up culturally for me because of this journey. I think that's what I'm the most grateful for. But there are other collaborations, like I did the Olympics, you know, in 2004 in Athens. 
And I wrote a lot of music for the opening ceremony, including the cool bits, like the, the flame being lit at the end and all that stuff. There's an example of a project where you agree to and have no idea how you're going to realize it. I just went, yeah, absolutely, I'll do that, no problem. And then figured it all out. But in that collaboration, I learned something very important, which is I was originally brought on board just to write some small fanfares. Like when they say the oaths, like I swear to uphold the values and so on, just these little fanfares, like 15-second pieces of music. But I was so agreeable and so easy to work with from their perspective that they gave me a little bit more. And then they gave me a little bit more. And I ended up having the biggest bits from the ceremony through my kind of collaborative ease. And so that was a very interesting learning experience. Like be, what is it, the three things? Do good work, be on time, and keep your mouth shut. Those are the keys to succeeding in a collaboration, something like that anyway. I think my dad has given me the same advice (laughs) throughout my life. But I do have another, just a follow-up to that, because when I have talked to some of my friends who are in more creative industries than the law or something like that that I'm in, one of the things that they talk a lot about is the criticism that you get is inevitable and you will have people that hate what you do or people that absolutely love what you do. And sometimes the the hatred or the negativity can stop people from creating it all. And I think that that's kind of part of what you've been talking about today is putting that fear aside and you're just going for it no matter what. But how do you deal with I mean, you're a very well-known composer, and I'm sure that you have lots of people that have opinions on things that you have done. How do you focus on your internal compass of what you find is your best work versus letting that outside noise dictate your self-worth? Well, I guess there there are two parts to that. One is that it goes back to what I was saying before about your self-esteem coming from how you feel about your own work. Like my self-esteem comes from knowing that the work that I've produced, whether it's any good or not, is the best that I could have done. So if I put more time into the pieces, they wouldn't be any better. So I reached a limit where, okay, well, that's it. That's the piece. And if you produce the best work you're capable of, then it doesn't matter what people think because you can't make it any better. You can't improve on this thing that you've made. I think the crucial thing is to know that you've made the best thing you can because then Feedback and responses mean way less, including the positive. There's a great quote of Werner Herzog, the filmmaker. He says, be wary of praise on other people's terms, right? And it's the same for criticism. And I'm very aware that when people criticize, it's from them. It's not about you. It's something that's about them. And there may be valid things in what they're saying, and it's always good to listen. But the important thing is to not be threatened or hurt by it. But I have to remind myself as I'm talking to all three of you that you are of a very different generation and you have grown up in what I think is a far more unsafe environment in which people can reach you through social media, through comments, through all kinds of communication technology in such a way that you don't have the barrier around you. You don't have that safety barrier and that buffer. That's the first part, at least the second part, which is that a few years ago, I completely left social media and I've been off it, like totally. And I realize it's a very important thing for people, especially in the arts. It's a way of letting people know about stuff. There are all kinds of reasons to be on it. I get that. But what I can tell you is that it's been fantastic. It's just been an amazing thing. And what I've noticed is that 
I have far more better conversations with people. I engage way more with people, with fewer people, but way better. And the relationships I'm building now around my work, I do through my website, with my newsletter. It's a smaller number of people, but it's way more meaningful. I would far rather take that than like trawl through comments and see all of these things that in some ways are totally irrelevant because it's just an opinion. And I'm somebody that gets generally very positive responses. So I haven't really been through that, that sort of grindstone of the haters. I haven't experienced that. But that thing is that uh, it's just totally normalized now that you will remove all of your filters and barriers and buffers and be utterly vulnerable to often malicious and ill-meaning and ignorant feedback. I love it. You mentor so much. And even when in school, I sensed a lot of gratitude from other students who I shared classes with, who had you as a teacher or who had you post-grad as well. And I'm wondering, what are some of the most common themes or questions that other students or just other musicians have approached you with, the things that you've seen in the middle of university, afterwards, before? I'm just curious to know what you've seen and and maybe how you've helped or or what knowledge you've had, because I do think there's a lot of common themes. A lot of people experience the same stuff. Yeah, I would say that most common themes from students' questions have, I mean, we talk about deeper questions, you know, not how do I finish my piece. Things that come up the most have been really a kind of a quivering sort of question of, am I any good? Should I continue? Do you see anything that suggests I should keep doing this? That's the hardest question to respond to. And sometimes I would have parents ask me that about their child. And I just remind you of what I was telling you with my father going to see my music teacher and asking that same question. And I never once encouraged anybody to stop because I believe very much that there's always the potential of some kind of launch moment where you it all just might come together for you and you take off. And I saw that repeatedly with students where they would be average or lackluster for any number of reasons because who knows what personal life is happening in any one student, right? It would just be like pushing a boulder uphill, trying to help a particular student. And then halfway through third year or in an honors year, they would just absolutely transform. And it's like, have you seen the Karate Kid film, the original? You've seen the bit where he's painting the fence? You know, and he says, paint the fence, he goes both sides and he has to go around and paint the other side. And then all of a sudden he knows Kung Fu moves. It's like that with creative study, which is it can all be going in, but it's not connecting. And then at some moment, it'll all just mesh together and you have these amazing powers. And because of that, I've never discouraged anybody from continuing because what I believe fundamentally is if it's not for you, you'll figure that out yourself. You will figure, you don't need me to stop you. And so that's one thing. That's the one very common one. And then the other one, which is how do I survive off this? Like where's the manual for making a living as a composer, which I'm still writing myself and figuring it out as I go. And so the practicality of it, but of course I had lots of advice to give about what to do in your first year out of uni, how to keep the ball rolling, get momentum going, all that. It was those two were the primary ones. And then the next one was about relevance, which is, okay, if I'm going to do this, if I leave university and I decide I am going to be a composer and I give it five years, 10 years, whatever, what matters 
in terms of music. What matters anymore? What should I do? What's the value of art in the world? And what contribution can I make? And I have to say that I don't know how you could be going into the arts now and not be totally focused on the future and what's ahead for planet Earth and for human beings and how can you in some way feed into that and make some positive contribution to thinking or feeling about what might be done. But that thing about relevance, we used to have these ridiculous conversations about is it okay to write music that's in a key anymore because of what's happened, you know, music history. And I just think that's... It's like the magician waving one hand while the other hand's doing the real trick over here. It's just, it's a completely pointless conversation to have and yet still fixated on that. The more important thing is how is what you're going to do going to fit into the zeitgeist and make a contribution or a change or stimulate people to think or feel things? I disagree with your earlier point that you would not be good at parties because <laughs> I think that if you have any kind of similar conversation that they're having now, you would be very popular at parties. <laughs> But um, another question that I think we talk a lot about on this podcast is self-care and how do you take care of yourself? Because kind of on that note that you're talking about of how could you do anything right now that doesn't take into account, you know, these more existential questions that we're dealing with as a species. That's a question I have for you is how do you take care of yourself? How do you recover from those intense bouts of drive that you have to get things done and What tips do you have for young people that that could be in similar music or otherwise? How should they be mentally checking in with themselves and being aware of their mental health? Of course, the biggest, most important thing is you have to know yourself. You have to know what you need in order to be okay. And everybody figures that out because I don't think there would be two human beings that are identical in that on earth. You know, everybody's different. I sort of think of it as a daily thing. I think you need to know what it is that's going to make you feel good at the end of a day. So that every day when you finish the day, you go, okay, that was a good day, you know. Not, oh boy, that was a terrible day. I I just have to do so much better tomorrow. And then you're saying the same thing at the end of the next day. Like for me, I I work, it's a lot. I will work maybe 6.30 in the morning till 7 or 8 at night constantly on writing music. I have this place up the coast, which is by the sea, where I often spend a lot of time, and I'll work for weeks, months, in that way completely alone, but no one else around me, and completely immersed in the work. But at the end of every day, I have to feel like I've been very productive. I know I need to feel that at the end of the day. So that's something for me. And feeling that, it means I can make a pizza and park in front of the TV and watch something awful, right? And so I do that every day. Not a pizza, but I do the the veg out, you know, where I just sit in front of the tally and just, I go, okay, I'm finished. I work like a 12-hour day. I'm totally okay. I got credit in the bank in terms of workload and all of that. So now I can completely relax. And I have to do that. That has to happen. That, that's hugely important and that works for me. For other people, like I know, talking to friends every day is hugely important. I know you talk a lot about, you have a lot of mental fortitude, seems like. But there will be external circumstances and you can have a bad day. Does the work suffer? How do you, do you push through on a really bad day? Or do you, is there any point where you're like, I, uh, I can work on this tomorrow or I need today? How do you judge that for yourself? Do you muscle through it? Or do you ever take a mental health day, John? That's the real question. Are you superhuman? <laughs> yeah. Or do you never have a bad day? <laughs> I have many bad days. Look, I'll tell you, there, 
I'm still recovering from the death of my mother, right? That's like seven years ago. And still, I, I'll just be hit by it and I'll cry. And Of course, it's impossible to be immune from those things. But I, I also understand that there, I think I can accept that there are things I can do nothing about. And things like grief, I think grief is just a river that runs through you. You know, you have to let it. There's nothing you can do about it. You have to live with it. The other side of it is that I've never been able to work creatively if my immediate relationships aren't good. So, for instance, if I have a, a shouting match with my, one of my kids when they go off to high school back in the day when they were in high school, I couldn't leave it. I had to, like, drive and find them walking to school and get them in the car and we'd go have a coffee and we'd talk it through and then everything would be okay and then I'd come back and work. Because I can't work here thinking that one of the primary relationships in my life isn't good. I realize retrospectively that's an incredible self-regulating mechanism for having good relationships and doing good work. But it's a weakness. Like I can't function if those things aren't okay. There's that. That's my point of vulnerability. And then in terms of a mental health day, it's amazing. I'm just getting so emotional just thinking about that. So I have, I think, so much pushed down here. Right, that I think if I was to take an emotional health day to turn into an emotional health year, I think it might, it might sort of spread out. But yeah, the thing is too that I have to say that I have taken on some of what my father had, which was I have definitely become the person to talk to. And amongst my immediate and quite wider circle of contacts, I'm often sought out. And I don't say this with any kind of pride. I'm just often sought out to tell problems to and vent and, and so on. The last sort of five or six years, that's really it's exploded and it's been very, very heavy. But I'm, I feel privileged to be there for others in this way. But there are times when I feel like very full of other people's things. So yeah, every now and then I think, man, I really need to take a break from this. And I kind of make myself a little bit less available. That's my way of coping with that. I think we're going to do an entire episode in the future on boundary setting and why that's important. <laughs> um, so we'll have to revisit this topic because I think we could have an entire episode on it. But I wanted to ask you before we wrap up, if there's anything that you would like to recommend to our listeners about anything that you've talked about today, books, articles, music, anything that you are reading, listening to, focusing on that you would recommend that kind of either relates to anything that we've talked about or just things that you're loving and would like to share? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so I am working on a, a new project now, which is, it's been this gradual progression, dealing with relevance and making some kind of impact. I've started working with text and I've been reading some books by an author. I might just type his name into the chat. Hang on. His name is Henry Giroux, an amazing writer. He's at McMaster University and he writes books about the current state of society and particularly pedagogy and education, but how that's impacting on everything that's happening. I started reading his books, and I would recommend all of them. He's got a fantastic website. You can find them. And his books are really hard. Like they're hard reading, sort of quite academic. But as I read them, I felt everybody should read this. This is amazing. It's, it's about the world right now and what's at the core of everything that's falling apart and why, particularly in America. He writes a lot about America, but it applies way more broadly. You know, so I read a whole lot of his books and I just thought, well, what am I going to do? Write another string quartet. No, I want to do something that has 
impact and meaning like these books. And so I, as I read them, I would be highlighting things, really important statements and comments. And I decided to extract all of these things. So I pulled them all out laboriously from the books, you know, and put them into a digital context. And I ended up making cards out of them. And I had something like two and a half thousand cards by the end of it. It was just mental, the whole thing. And then I thought, well, actually, I want to create some music with these. I don't know how, but I want to do something and use this because it's so important. So I did this thing, and this is my bit of advice, which is I did this thing, which most people won't do. I wrote to him. You know, I wrote to Henry. And I was in awe. I am in awe of this man. And I wrote to him. I said, hey, this is me. This is what I do, some samples of my work. He said, I really want to use some of the text because I think everybody should know about your work. And he wrote back to me like within an hour. And he just said, hey, it's so good to meet you. Please, please use whatever you want. And he was, and now we've, we have this great relationship and I'm developing this work. And I think that thing of not fearing reaching out or taking a step or trying something, it's more about the why not rather than why. There's a huge difference between those two things. I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time, for coming and chatting with us. I, again, I think we could talk for probably three more hours about all of this, but thank you so much. We have loved having you and we will be sure to share your website with all of our listeners. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And we will be back in a few weeks. Thanks for listening. This episode was made possible by our audio engineer, Jack Booth, and our growth strategist, Mikey Lulo. For more resources and inspiration on finding your purpose, check out our Instagram at Paths2PurposePod. We'll see you next time. Bye.